Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Yard Sign. I'm your host, as always, Johnny Torres. Thank you so much for watching. Uh, before we get started, make sure you like, subscribe, follow us on all of our social media platforms, especially on YouTube. If you miss an episode, you can catch all of them there. And you can also catch an audio version of our podcast on Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcast platforms. So make sure you subscribe and leave us a review for that as well. Uh, as expected, Got a lot to talk about, even more stuff that we're not going to get to on today's show, but uh, we're going to do our best. Uh, we've, we've chosen the topics for this week, and, uh, and of course, we've got a cast of match. Uh, so thank you so much for watching. Uh, we're going to start with Congressman John Lewis and uh, his passing. Uh, we'll take a little, talk a little bit about the legacy he's left behind uh, and uh, what's to come. Uh, also, speaking of uh, legacies and uh, icons in our government, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, says that her cancer has come back, and so we'll deconstruct what that means, uh, not only for her, but for the country as well. And Portland continues to be a problem. Portland, Seattle, it's still all a huge mess. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the boogeyman going on over there and all the continued riots and destruction happening, um, uh, thanks to Antifa and other parties. Uh, and then, of course, we're going to close it out with uh, what may be the biggest issue, I think, to come out of this year, um, politically, legislatively, and that is uh, Trump's proposal to put out an executive order regarding DACA. Um, and that, of course, affects uh, kids, teenagers, even some uh, who are now adults uh, who have been here uh, due to the unrest uh, throughout Central and South America. Uh, and of course, what does that mean? for the country and for those of us and even our upcoming elections. So let's go to our cast today. We got a great cast of characters. Joining me right over here next to me is Chris Licata for his second week in a row. Hey, Chris. Down in the uh, box across from me, that, as always, is Mr. Anibal Cabrera. <laughs> Being very patriotic and very safe <sighs> in this pandemic. Yes, yes, I'm trying to. <laughs> yeah, that's about as long as I can wear that thing, too, so I don't blame you. Uh, and that beautiful lady right beneath me joining us, uh, she's been away for a little while, but always very active uh, for the show behind the scenes is Amy Beck. Hey, Amy. We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, guys, uh, Congressman John Lewis is someone that uh, I would say for the most part uh, has transcended partisan politics. He's obviously an icon of the 1960s civil rights era. And, and I, you know, I, I posted this, you know, when I, when I shared the story about his passing on Facebook, that he is kind of a symbolic end of that era. Um, I mean, you could certainly point to Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, but those guys you know, have, have pretty much turned into charlatans and, and snake oil salesmen, and, and they've, they've basically have used the civil rights movement uh, for their own profiteering. Um, John Lewis is someone that, you know, obviously, again, started from activism uh, and made his way all the way to Congress and had a huge impact there. Um, obviously, there's now there going to be a, a fight for his seat. Um, do you think that... Uh, you know, what, what do you think uh, this has uh, in terms of an effect on the Democratic Party? I think the first uh, thing to do in this matter is really just to give him kudos and credit for all that he did in his life, his last 80 years of, of, of working for civil rights movement and everything else. He was of the big six that were there during uh, Bloody Sunday in, in, um, in Georgia. And so it's, it's been a long time coming for what he has done. And, has, and the country has completely changed within his lifetime. So it's good to see that that has occurred. I feel that the right tone is being hit by all sides of just giving him kudos, giving him credit, 
and allowing the country to be able to passing of someone that was so instrumental in, in the development of the civil rights movement and the continuation of um, making sure that all people are equal under the law. Uh, Amy, you know, we saw uh, congressmen, senators, even the president, you know, uh, everybody on both sides of the aisle uh, go ahead and, and recognize uh, the passing of, of Congressman Lewis. Uh, I think, again, there's no shortage of, of recognition for all the work that he's done and maybe not enough recognition. I mean, do you think we're going to be able to find someone like that uh, to replace him in our current political climate? Well, in my opinion, Don Lewis is a, or he is a person of his own stature. So it's really hard to try to compare him to someone else because he's definitely going to be a huge loss for um, the civil rights. Not a huge loss. Uh, it, he, his death was a huge loss. He did a lot of uh, pioneering and foundation building, and he really did help elevate civil rights, especially within the African-American community. So for someone else to come along and fill those shoes, it's not really going to be fair to compare them to Mr. Lewis because um, he's, he was an icon. He's iconic, but whoever does fill his shoes, I hope that they do carry on with his legacy. Yeah, no, look, you made a great point. Um, this by no means uh, is saying that the, the civil rights movement has ended, uh, you know, because we obviously see what's going on around the country uh, and even around the world in regards to civil rights and racial inequality. Um, you know, Chris, uh, again, you know, this is a guy who you could kind of make the case that this is the kind of person that you might want to see, you know, serve their country, uh, you know, and, and you could justify basically the lack of term limits there are in Congress when somebody is kind of as driven, you know, by his purpose. Um, but, uh, you know, again, is this, is this kind of the end of an era legislatively and politically as well? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it, it's definitely the end of, a, end of an era. And, uh, and you know, it's interesting because uh, I, don't, I don't know if the audience knows this about me, but you know, I went to military boarding school throughout middle school, high school, and then I served in the military. And, you know, to, from just my background and how we are about the whole thing is like, okay, this man was a congressman. It's not politics. It's not like he was a congressman for decades. And whether you agree with his politics or not, like that, that should mean something in our, um, in our Republican form of government. And, and, and I'm happy to see that for a lot of people, it still does. Um, and that we're, we're not making it political. Um, you know, it's, uh, he, he was a statesman and, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, uh, it's frustrating because I do think that whoever takes the seat will not fill his shoes. Well, and I'll, I'll be frank here, you know, and I'll call it out for what it is, but there was a lot of hateful comments on some of the, um, posts on Republican Party or Republican affiliated pages that recognize Congressman Lewis's passing and honored him, you know, for the work that he's done. The comment section was just horrible to to go through. And and, and I think, you know, to your point, uh, Chris, I, I think that's something that, you know, especially those of us of the younger generation who were raised differently, certainly have a different perspective on race relations. Uh, I think that's something that we need to call out and we need to deem it as unacceptable. I mean, you know, there's a time and a place for the, for that sort of thing. And, and this is not it. And, uh, and again, and he was somebody that transcended partisan politics, uh, you know, given his life's mission, but uh, it's, it's, it's sad to see that people can't set aside their personal politics, even for 
just a few moments, you know, and recognize obviously his contribution to this country. Anybody else? Uh, final words on Congressman Lewis's passing? I feel that the congressional seat is probably still going to stay inside Democratic hands. I won't. I don't really see that um, transitioning whatsoever. And I don't think it needs to go as political as people expect it to be. It's going to be runoff, and it's going to be primary, and let's see what what happens to that. Also, in regards to calling out um, fellow conservatives, alleged fellow conservatives, writing uh, very inappropriate things on the comment sections of of these of these pages, it's it's unacceptable. It's it's irreproachable, and we have to. I guess I agree with you, John. We have to call it out when we see that kind of just blatant disrespect of an elected official. You might agree with it, you might disagree with him, but it doesn't matter. He has protections of the, the amendments as the rest of us do, and we have to acknowledge that and play by the same rules as everyone else does. Yeah, let me jump in one more time here, Johnny. Um, yeah, the one of the things is, you know, this is a, I, I think people get caught up in thinking um, that every, you know, every congressional seat matters and, you know, and by, you know, by, by recognizing the good that this individual did, um, that you're also somehow condoning the policies that you disagree with. I, I think there are some of those on our side that, that, that get those things conflicted. I think there are those on all sides that get those things conflicted when we talk about pulling down statues and stuff. But, but you know, this man was a congressman. He, he did, you know, he, he lived his life with a, with a code. And, uh, and again, like, there's no reason to really argue the point because that seat is, you know, it's a D plus 24 um, as I'm pulling it up right now. So it's like, the, look, this is, they deserve, that district deserves to have representation, you know, and that district deserves, you know, and, and, and he, they were represented by this, this, you know, this guy who was very, very influential in, in our nation's politics. So he should be celebrated for, the, the good that he did and the, the working across the aisle that he did. And that doesn't mean I, you know, all of a sudden like flip flop and agree with every policy position he ever took. You know, you, you, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And for some conservatives or alleged conservatives to, to say that we can't is just frustrating. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, one of the few things that I agree with, with a lot of the unrest that's happening right now is obviously there's now a petition, a movement, um, to rename the bridge that he was famously attacked on while protesting during the civil rights era, uh, you know, to his name. It's currently, I believe, named after a well-known Klansman, uh, if you can believe it or not. And, and the irony of that, right? And I think it would be appropriate in this situation to go ahead and, and rename that bridge. And, and I'm so surprised that it's taken this long to do so. Uh, but again, given his connection to that bridge to that moment in history, uh, I certainly think that it would be appropriate and, uh, and, and hopefully uh, those involved that get to make that decision will we'll kind of see it for what it is. But, you know, my concern here politically would be that given what, what you just said, Chris, because I haven't had a chance to look at the makeup of that congressional district, is that we get somebody that is much farther to the left than, than you would say that Congressman Lewis uh, was. And, and I think that would be detrimental to, to that district because, again, he was somebody who I felt represented our politics of old where, you know, there, were, there was some centrism, you know, I think all around. And, uh, and, and he, again, was somebody who was not overtly partisan, um, <clears throat> but certainly, obviously, a lifelong Democrat. And so, uh, you know, we'll see kind of who crops up out of that. 
Um, but, um, you know, uh, it, it's going to be an interesting election cycle nonetheless. I will say one last thing is uh, I, I believe from what I'm seeing here is that it's going to uh, it's going to be a special, but it's uh, too late in the cycle for it to be a special in conjunction with uh, the rest of the election. So it's going to be like a December yeah. election. Yeah, and I, I guess the party is already looking for people to submit their names, you know, for the special election. And, you know, this is kind of where it gets a little messy because the party is absolutely going to have their hands in kind of who who gets into this this ballot um but uh no surprise there uh and and they're obviously going to probably look for someone who is uh very much anti-trump and anti this administration you know i think that's just kind of the flavor of the day unfortunately but let's go ahead and move on uh you know to another icon uh, of government and legislation and that is a uh, ruth bader ginsburg who is uh, announced that she uh, has uh, another bout of cancer uh, and uh, that she is going to fight it as she always has, uh, not going to retire, uh, you know, but she, I'd say as of late, probably, you know, within the last five to 10 years, she's certainly let it be known that she's, you know, ardently, you know, to the left, I would say, of, of kind of where, you know, we want our judges to be, um, but uh, that she also, you know, specifically, this given this administration was going to make every effort to avoid uh, the the simple fact that this administration would get to that point for her replacement uh, or nominate a, an appointment to her replacement. Um, <clears throat> you know, does this make the case for term limits on the Supreme Court? Uh, you know, or or is this uh, the right thing to do to kind of let her uh, ride it out as long as possible? Write it out as long as possible. This branch of government ha should have the right to, again, they come into it knowing that it's their, it's their seat for life. This is not something that no one knows about. It, it, is, it is what it is. This is what the founding fathers wanted in, when it came to the Supreme Court. And at the end of the day, RBG, RBG is a thug when it comes to the way that she's lived this world, the way she's lived her life currently. And again, if she feels that she can continue to uphold um, her, do her due diligence and be able to do her uh, rulings, even though she falls asleep in the middle of a lot of the hearings, it is, it is what it is. This is not something that we can change mid-stripe. We have to continue moving forward on this. And I would also like to add that when it comes to this election cycle, this is the last thing we want to add onto the plate of things that need to get done. We don't want to add additional scrutinage when it comes to electing a new Supreme Court judge. And honestly, I think we should still keep up with the rule of that you don't elect and you don't appoint a new judge. I think it's like six months away or eight months away from uh, an election cycle. I think it's just way too close and will cause too much of a problem. Well, I don't think that's an actual rule. I think that was just kind of, <clears throat> that was just something that uh, I believe during the end of the Obama administration, Republicans came out and said, hey, you know, this isn't, you know, appropriate because we don't know what who the next administration is going to be and that sort of thing. I don't think that's written down anywhere, um, but it was, right. no, it, it, it was it was a case that Republicans were trying to make, you know, to to stop the Obama administration from appointing a Supreme Court justice at the end of their administration. Chris, go ahead. Um, yeah, well, it wasn't really a, a, a case that we shouldn't. Um, the, the, the argument was from from Mitch McConnell is anytime you have a divide 
conflict between the, the, the executive branch and the Senate. The majority of the Senate is of the opposite party of the president. Anytime that's happened in American history, no appointments are made um, in front of an election, right? Um, now, that's not the case this year, number one. Uh, number two, uh, I, I think a lot of this conversation might be premature in the sense that, that R, RGB is, um, it, she's had cancer before and she, she's, you know, I think the word was, and she is, she, she's very healthy. She's very healthy. So, uh, you know, I, I think that comes. Yeah, she's a thug. She's a thug. So um, I, I think she's very healthy. What, what is actually more curious is at the moment with the poll numbers and everything, and I, I don't mean to change the subject off of RGV, but I think we're talking the Supreme Court and the, the shift of that institution, is are we going to see Thomas retire in the next few weeks? Are we going to see Alito try and put in retirement for the next few weeks? Because they're like, okay, I don't know how this election is going to go. If, if their faith in, in how the, the term, especially Thomas, if their faith in how November is going to go is, is, is dwindling, then they, they might, you know, you know, pull the ripcord now. Um, and one of the interesting things as, as I, I understand an evil's point is that it's like the last thing 2020 needs, but uh, you know, it's the opposite view is also true. It's 2020, anything can happen. And, um, and you could even have a lame duck appointment to uh, you, know, you could have an appointment during the lame duck session. And it's happened before. Um, as far as term limits to the Supreme court, I am very much in favor uh, of an 18 or 20 year term limit because up until the 1970s, uh, the Supreme court justices served less than 22 years on average, you know, not even on average, the, the longest serving one was, was less than 22 years. And on average, they were at 17 years. So it was after the 1970s that I think presidents really started to understand, oh, let me put young people on the court. And this way they can be there for 50 years. And I think that's, that's not the founder's intent, right? That's not what, you know, that's not how this is all supposed to work. Uh, so if we need to correct that through term limits, or if the Senate just needs to correct that by putting older, older, older lawyers on the court in the first place, then we'll have more turnover and, and we could have more uh, political control over the court. Well, and to that point really quickly before I throw it over to Amy, is, is that our society, our civilization, you know, has evolved so much, you know, within the last 30 to 40 years that, you know, you have to imagine you know, how in touch, you know, are some of these Supreme Court justices that have been in there well beyond that, you know, and, and what effect does that have on their perspective when it comes to Supreme Court rulings? Amy, well, you know, give us your, your thoughts on the impact of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, and, and again, do you, do you see her kind of riding it out uh, till she, you know, um, uh, till, till her, her life comes to an end, you know, uh, you know, or, you know, do you see her retiring at some point during the next administration well in in my opinion my personal theory here is that uh trump being elected in 2016 ruined her retirement plans because everyone thought it was going to be hillary clinton so therefore she was probably going to retire within hillary clinton's term so hillary clinton can appoint the next person another liberal judge or supreme justice and um, I bet you anything that right now, my theory is that she's hanging on till after the elections because they think that Biden's gonna win and then, they're Bi then Biden can appoint someone for her to retire. However, if Donald, or if Trump wins again in 2020, 
she's going to hang on as long as she can. She's going to, like, I think she, I think this is more about politics than it is uh, supreme justice. The fact that she's, she's, let's just say she's hang on way past her expiration date. And she was legitimately going to retire after Hillary Clinton's um, win. And then it surprised everyone that Hillary Clinton didn't win. So uh, she's, I, she's probably, she's a tough bird, Miss Ruth is. And I bet you she is hanging on until uh, the next liberal president wins an election, if he wins an election, so that someone like that could fill her shoes. So I, I wanted... Go ahead, Chris. Sorry, I, I jumped in. Um, one of the other things that I know is politically inconceivable, but is at least allowed under the rules and allowed under the Constitution and everything is, is the fact that, I mean, Congress can uh, remove, it can impeach a Supreme Court justice um, and, and not necessarily just for a crime, but for loss of mental faculties. That, that is a, a theory that has been put forth and, and explored by many uh, political theorists. Now, of course, that would obviously take a political turn and be viewed as a, uh, as, you know, as a uh, burning at the stake of, you know, of the, of the other side's political wishes, especially with a president of the opposite branch. Um, so that's not a, a, a lane worth, you know, necessarily discussing, but I, I do like the, the structural, you know, details of the fact that that is actually possible if we had a Congress that, you know, got along with itself. Well, in the, you know, again, we're obviously pushing for the president to be reelected uh, uh, re in, uh, in uh, you know, the coming months. Uh, but knowing what we do about this president and his desire to leave a legacy, to leave a fingerprint on, you know, his time in the Oval Office, um, you know, I certainly see him uh, making some nominations if, if the opportunity were to come available. Uh, what do you guys think? I think if the opportunity becomes available, I think he'll definitely take that opportunity to elect another conservative judge onto the bench, no matter who it is replacing. Normally you, you replace whoever was on their side, left or right. And now I think the president, if the president gets the opportunity, he'll, he'll make his decision. Uh, I don't like the idea of us electing a Supreme Court judge during an election cycle, especially this close to an election cycle, because it gets very partisan, very ugly, very quickly. Um, and that's what's going to happen. And I don't know if that's a fight that we want to fight right now with everything else that's, that's happening around the country at the moment. But this is a good academic study to see what, what will happen. I don't see uh, the other conservative judges retiring before the end of the end of the cycle. I think those are the same thing that RBJ did, RBG did, and which is uh, hold off until the next conservative uh, president comes on board. Yeah, well, and again, she's certainly someone that is also, uh, I mean, undoubtedly going to leave an immense legacy behind. Um, but uh, Chris, Amy, you want to chime in? Does the president make a nomination? Does he push to fill that seat if anything happens in the next few months? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the This president will even if he loses the election, if he has an opportunity to make an, a, a nomination during the lame duck cycle, he will. Um, and I, that's why I bring that up, is that he, even in a case where he loses the election um, and he has an opportunity to make an appointment to the Supreme Court in December, him and Mitch McConnell, if this is the one thing that they are lockstep on, um, 
will will get that done before Christmas if they have an opportunity. So that's that's what you know. Is that good for the country? Uh, I guess an evil's correct. It probably isn't, but is that where we are? And and what is very possible with this president and this Senate and and where the country is right now? If there's an opportunity, they will take it, and the Senate will take it as well. Uh, Amy, go ahead. Do you think he makes the nomination? Do you think he should make a nomination? This is Trump. It doesn't matter if he should or shouldn't. He is very unconventional in his uh, dealings, and you know that he will. If he has the opportunity, he's going to take it. He's, you know, he didn't become a businessman, multi-billionaire, you know, for being conventional. He'll do it. He'll any opportunity he can, he will just to set up more conservative people in. Um, as Supreme Justice. However, yes, is an election cycle kind of thing that um, I think he would take the opportunity to have the liberals light themselves on fire and go crazy if he can, because that's what would happen if he did go and appoint someone. They're going to go crazy. We're all, all of a sudden, you know, you're not going to see any more riots or COVID. It's, it's all going to cure itself. They're all going to, the media is just going to focus on this new Supreme Justice uh, appoint, appointment and then, you know, all these stories from the 80s of being sexually hurt, it'll just go crazy. And um, he would do it because for him, it would be a win because the media would just go crazy and people would go crazy. And all he'd have to do is like, look at them all going crazy and just trying to point, uh, lead the country and appoint someone as a Supreme Justice. Why are they so mad? All right, we're about to move on to our next topic, but thank you again for watching The Yard Side, the most important irrelevant podcast in politics. Uh, again, we've had a lot of great topics for today, but even more stuff that uh, we did not get to. So be watching our Facebook page for links to more stories happening right now, both locally, uh, statewide, and nationally. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and on our uh, podcast uh, platforms. That's Apple, Google, Spotify, uh, if you want the audio version of our podcast. Uh, and please leave us reviews. Uh, those help other people find our programs. Uh, if this is a program uh, that you happen to like, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we've got Chris Licata, Anibal Cabrera, and Amy Beck joining us uh, for today's show. Now we're going to dive into what's happening over in the weirdest city in America. And that's uh, by their title, not mine. Uh, Portland, Oregon still continues to be a mess. Uh, uh, I'm pretty sure by this point, there's no doubt that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has kind of moved on from this, uh, this disaster that's happening up there. Uh, I mean, in my opinion, at least, I mean, this seems to be strictly an Antifa effort. They're continuing to destroy public and private property uh, throughout uh, the city of Portland. Uh, in fact, the, the federal government is now involved and the city of Portland uh, and the state of Oregon continues to be somewhat uh, inactive. I mean, just completely hands off in this situation. Uh, guys, um, you know, is it now basically just left up to the federal government to to get uh, this under control? Yeah. Um, no, 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 no. It says, I want to be specific in what you're saying there. Um, I don't think that without a, the governor's or the, the mayor's request to the federal government, that the federal government should be sticking its nose in this business necessarily. Now, in regards to what we have seen happen in Portland, that's a different thing. Those are federal U.S. marshals protecting a federal courthouse, which is federal property. Um, there's been no attempt by those individuals, uh, by those law enforcement officers to stop people from protesting or to, to enforce local laws or to, in, you know, quell any, anything other than if you, you know, try to tag the courthouse or you throw a rock through the courthouse window, 
um, they're coming out in mass force and they're, they're arresting you. Or if they have video of you doing that in the past and then they, they see you again, then they show up in unmarked cars and they, they, they haul you back to the courthouse where a federal judge will, uh, you know, help you with Miranda and all of that. They're not doing that in the street for officer safety reasons. And that's fine. Um, so, so people have to understand what's going on there. Uh, but as far as no, should the federal government be involved in stopping people from protesting without the, the governor or the mayor say so? Absolutely not. Well, one of the things that uh, I, I found surprising but refreshing, you know, and obviously this is one of those things that divides Republicans and Democrats, was the president's denial of federal funds uh, for the city of Minneapolis, for instance, you know, because they pretty much just let these riots happen and they let these people go through the streets and destroy things. And, uh, and now they want the federal government to foot the bill. And I don't think that's appropriate at all. Uh, and evil, I mean, aside from, you know, the, the feds uh, kind of getting involved and removing some of these uh, people who are, are committing destruction, what do you think is the end result here? What, what's the end game in Portland to, to kind of get this to come to an end? Well, you have two camps kind of forming in the decisions that the that the president made, and the acting head of um, Homeland Security and all the other agencies that are working right now to create a, a way to defend uh, federal land, to uh, to defend statues that are being torn down in this anarchist movements. I, I think that's needed to play out to see what's going to happen. And honestly, you could say that this was more of a trap that Trump was able to, to spring on the local and state officials of Oregon to be like, look, our goal is to create, to reestablish law and order. If you don't want that to occur, then you need to step up and do your jobs. Not arresting people and then letting them go. You're just feeding the monster that's being created. And I agree with Johnny. I think BLM has, large uppercase BLM, has officially moved on from the state of, the state of Portland. Um, just because, I, or, or state of Oregon, just because I don't think what the tactics that are happening there are definitely not in the movement that they wanted to create. And moving forward from that, I think this needs to happen in other states that are having, that are unwilling to, to deal with the protesters that are occurring. And I don't think that they're protesters anymore. I'm gonna say the rioters and those that are disturbing the peace. You see a distinctive line during the day with protesting and uh, standing armed arm with the mayors and, and, with the, and with the police officers. And they're doing what needs to get done to better their societies and their cities. But as soon as night falls, you have looters and, and uh, anarchists and agitators that come out. And I no longer call them protesters. I call them um, those that want to cause mischief. And I, think what's, and I think Chris hit it on the nail. What's happening now is those federal officers are looking at tapes and looking at who's attacking the federal buildings and then finding those individuals when they're on the street and picking them up there. It's not like, and you, I love the left's response. Oh, this is, this is Gestapo and this is, they're trying, this is turning into a, a fascist state. No, this is not at that whatsoever. They're abiding the laws that, that are, that, that we are governed under. And just because you don't agree with it doesn't mean it's not correct. Well, and as someone who's worked within the confines of the federal courthouse, I mean, there's incredibly sensitive information there. Of course, you have your federal judges who work out of there. Um, of the records, you know, a lot of records are kept there. Uh, and this is a building that needs to be secured at all times. And, and you know, these uh, men who showed up in these uniforms, um, you know, and the, the, the men who are probably the men and women who are probably there on a daily basis protecting these buildings, 
are federal law enforcement. These are U.S. Marshals, and you know that are uh, made charge to protect the, this this facility. And so, what a lot of people don't know is that you can't. You're not even allowed to protest on federal property, much less obviously commit some sort of act of destruction towards it. Uh, and that's where uh, the failure has been on their part. Uh, not that this would stop them by any means, but you know, certainly it, it justifies what's happening here um, from a safety perspective. Uh, Amy, uh, again, Portland continues to see the, these riots and these, uh, the, you know, these groups kind of gathering at night. At what point do you think that the city of Portland just says, okay, enough's already? They won't. Um, this is uh, just a social justice, um, letting them tear the city down and then they're gonna ask for help and they're not gonna get it. And then they're gonna point and say, we needed help and we didn't get it. The incident in Portland where these people were protesting outside of a federal courthouse, um, you have to look at the patterns. Uh, Portland had had literally 60 days, almost 60 days straight of protests that turned into riots where they're tearing stuff down. And then so obviously the uh, local authorities aren't going to do anything. So they, then they should pull up to a federal, a federal building. And um, of course, you know, the, the federal police come out, the marshals, as it was said, to, to quell this because they're not going to put up with it. Because again, as you said, Johnny, that um, there's a lot of information inside this federal courthouse. I, looking at the example of what happened with Chaz in the Seattle Police Department, think about how many crimes and evidence and persecutions were completely lost, where victims lost their property, they lost rape kits, they lost evidence to prosecute people. And that is completely gone now because of what happened. So there is, so them going to a federal building and the police or the federal police have to take control of the situation and protect what's there. They have to do that because it's for the better good. It's that that place serves the public and people. Don't tear it down. I mean, if you're going to protest, protest. Don't destroy stuff. Don't throw rocks. Don't get angry. It doesn't justify how angry. It doesn't justify your movement when you do things like that. And I'm if I the, I think uh, the federal police getting involved or uh, marshals getting involved is probably one of the last things you want to happen. However, it's been proven again and again and again that local authorities are not doing anything. They're not stopping anything. Well, and and one of the big points is as while there might have been then there has been certainly uh, some use by the marshals to go outside of the courthouse and and pick people up who they have footage of you know um, committing a crime or or you know maybe trying to tear down a statue in the vicinity of the courthouse. Um, one of the one of the videos that you don't see running around Facebook or, or social media as much and not being touted by the media was uh, an individual taking a crowbar to the front door of the courthouse, right, and trying to break into the courthouse, in which case, like, 50 marshals came out and, you know, they grabbed, you know, that guy and his, uh, his accomplice, and then the rest of the crowd just, you know, started shouting at them, like, oh, like they were the bad guys. It's like, you, we literally watched a crime in progress and law enforcement do something about it. And, and, and yet they're the bad guys because they were supposed to let crime happen. It, it, it makes no sense. Well, and the truth of the matter is that this group has been forming and growing and recruiting now for years, maybe even well over a decade. Um, and I think that they saw the opportunity in the Black Lives Matter movement uh, to culminate uh, in momentum, uh, in which it seems like they have. Uh, now, fortunately for us, they are obviously mostly limited to Seattle and Portland, uh, but there are certainly members of Antifa all throughout the, the country. 
uh, but they've found this moment to try to make their stand. And their goal is essentially to bring down the American government. I mean, these are Marxists we're talking about. And, and that's why I think the BLM, you know, and for the most part has kind of started to, you know, uh, separate themselves and make sure that, you know, they're no longer affiliated with this group. Although Antifa was quick to kind of latch onto them because they realized here is a movement with momentum, with a lot of anger, with a lot of frustration that they can capitalize on. And they did. Uh, Anibal, you wanted to jump in? Yes, I think what's happening now, and you see a big separation, even with inside the BLM movement, that pe that African Americans and people of Black and Brown communities are starting to get agitated of the BLM's practices, of the fact that they're only fighting for justice for certain individuals that are being killed by certain people, and not the whole community as a whole. You have issues in New York where the BLM um, mural in front of the Trump Tower has been de um, has been painted on or thrown paint at now three times and not by the, the ultra right wing um, nut jobs from the South, but from uh, um, but from people from the, the black community. And that's just a stark reminder of that this is causing a lot more controversy inside their communities then people are realizing and it's starting to piss off a lot of African-Americans when it comes to you're wanting to defund the police when our communities and our community safety is not as important than what your movement is. And that's where you're starting to hear it. And so, and then you have a situation where you have Officer Jefferson um, in, the, in uh, Portland who got accosted by a white protester because he was having a conversation with a African-American protester. And it's because, and again, it's because Antifa and all these other anarchist movements are embedding themselves in the BLM movement, and it's starting to crack under the pressure. People don't want that. They want resolutions. They want to work with their communities to better their societies, not to destroy the system as a whole. And that's what these, that's what these anarchists want. In Portland and Seattle and some of the other cities in the Northeast, their local governments have become such uh, a, a, a ridiculous showcase that they're unable to answer and defend their own citizens. And that's why I tell people all the time, you allow these cities and these states that have been governed by Democrats for the now 50, 60 years, and this is what you're gonna get. You get complete anarchy because people are not willing to change the vote. Well, and to that point, you know, I think also now that there's been some time here and, and the Black Lives Matter movement uh, or the organization, I, I mean, has reached national prominence, people are starting to do their homework and they're starting to look at, well, what does this organization really stand for and what are they trying to achieve? And I think there are a lot of people in the black community who are starting to realize that, okay, we're not cool with this. Like this isn't on our to-do list. You know, this, this aligns, uh, like I don't believe in, in, in more than half of this stuff. I mean, when, you know, they're talking about, you know, other social issues that have nothing to do with black lives. And, and, and that's where I feel that this organization is starting to lose its foundation, um, you know, but there was actually a great political cartoon that I saw that I think accurately represents the, the BLM organization, uh, which is, you know, you have all these corporate entities now giving the BLM organization money, and it basically is a pass-through to the Democratic Party, and, uh, and I think that's also not sitting right with people because those are funds and resources that could go to the Black community. Uh, but instead, they're going to Democratic candidates, most of which uh, aren't even black. 
Uh, so, you know, th th this is going to be something that I think uh, is eventually going to backfire in and of itself. Uh, Amy, you want to jump in? Yeah, I watched a really good video of, it was a black woman that was talking about the protesting and the riots, and she made a really great point that you're coming into our neighborhoods and you're destroying our bus stops that we use to get to work. You're going into uh, buildings and destroying businesses and looting from stores where we work at. This is not helping our community. You, you guys keep saying that you want to help black people. You want to help, you want to help um, make things better and make things change, yet you're coming into low income areas and you're destroying the targets, you're destroying our bus stops, you're destroying, you're going into um, a, people that need affordable housing, you're, you're destroying the stores that are right next door that a lot of them work at and a lot of them go to and buy and buy groceries from. So you're not helping by doing this. And that's why I think it's becoming a huge wake up call. Because oh. how many people with all, with all these businesses and stuff like that, how many in the middle of a pandemic, how many people have to pay rent? Every single one of them. Now these people can't go, you know, work their jobs anymore because the job's completely, torn down so it does you know it, again it's it's coming to light that the black i think um the black lives matter movement was founded on um it had a good cause of what it was founded on and where it wanted to go but unfortunately i think like many of those things it got hijacked by extremists and it's it it kind of now it's overshadowing in my opinion what black lives matters was meant to do well, I mean, we saw the perfect example of that right here in Tampa. You know, where did the rioting happen? It didn't happen downtown. It didn't happen in South Tampa. It happened in, in Temple Terrace over in the university area, which is a predominantly black community. And they destroyed some of their own businesses. They destroyed the, the, the local mall, which was already suffering and on decline as it is. Uh, and when you do those things, the newer businesses that have cropped up in that area are gonna start to second guess whether or not they should even stay in business in those areas uh, for fear of their business being targeted next. So it, it, it's, it's sad what's happening uh, in Portland and Seattle because both of those are absolutely beautiful cities. Uh, and, and, the, and, and I think at some point, if the government, the local government's not gonna step in, I think the community's gonna have to, uh, to bring all these riots and, and protests uh, to an end. Uh, let's go ahead and, and uh, bring up tonight's final topic. Again, thank you so much for watching The Yard Sign. Make sure you follow us on all of our social media platforms and share the video if you can while you're watching. Uh, go ahead and hit that share button uh, so we can reach more people uh, throughout the country. Uh, but we end on President Trump. And, uh, and uh, no, never any shortage of news when it comes to the president, but he did make a promise, I would say a little over a week ago, uh, that he was going to put out an executive order in regards to uh, the DACA policy that has been in place since the Obama administration. Uh, and uh, so DACA is very different than the DREAM Act. Uh, the DREAM Act was obviously a proposal to give uh, young people you know, who fall under DACA basically a path to citizenship. That obviously failed, the DREAM Act failed. And, uh, and, but you still have DACA in place because it was done under an executive order, which is the deferred action of ch uh, child arrivals. And so these are children that have arrived here um, sometimes with, sometimes without parents or guardians. Um, and, and of course, you know, what status does that give them here in this country? Um, this has now been around so long that some of these children are now adults. Um, but uh, let's go ahead and start with a little speculation. Uh, Chris, what do you think Trump's executive order is going to consist of? 
I I don't like playing this game. Um, but <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I I think it's I I, I want to just go over the history a little more in detail because like one of the things that's happened here is that Congress has failed to act for twenty years, and President Obama then took executive action, an unprecedented executive action, and now the court has essentially said uh, this session, the Supreme Court said. Well, you know, Obama shouldn't have done it that way, but he did. And, uh, you know, you can't just overturn it because it's acting at like law at this point, even though he had no legislative authority to do so. Um, so now you have a situation in which the executive branch and the judicial branch have made a law. Um, so now we have a very interesting situation in which how, how do we resolve that? Um, because that's number one, not those branches' jobs. Um, the the he can go any which way he wants with it. Um, if he wants to, you know, a, a, amend DACA, he can amend, you know, make a make a different version of DACA that still has a path to citizenship. Um, I'm seeing some whispers about that. Uh, you know, he could go that route. Maybe that's that that's a good route. I, I don't know. I, I, you know, he could work with Congress. Ultimately, what should have happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, is Congress should have issued, you know, a law, a bill that says what the immigration policy of the United States ought to be. Um, but, you know, that, that requires congressmen making difficult decisions, and they don't want to do that. Amy, what do you think is going to be in this executive order? What I think and what I hope for, um, well, I know that sure, <laughs> has like, it's, it's pretty tough. Like the DACA is really, I think, a bandaid on the bigger issue of immigration and what to do. Um, you know, I find that the left run on like prop up children, like, look at this child. How can you do this for a child for this um, awe factor? And, and it's not that so much that we, I don't feel, I feel sorry for the, I feel empathy for the kid. I feel sympathy for the children that are here that are brought here by their parents. But to me, it's a loophole. He, and it wouldn't be such a problem if it wasn't a loophole and so many people were using it as a way to um, come here. What I hope happens in this um, DACA is I hope that they have decided that they are going to take a look at these children. They're going to look at the ones that are contributing. They're going somewhere. They're being something. They're being part of the community. And then they're going to uh, separate the ones that are contributing to society, the ones that are adults now, and then the ones that are taken away from society, like getting arrested stealing, murdering, and send, send the ones that are not contributing back to where they came from, and let's keep the ones that are going to contribute and make America better, more diverse, and not sucking from the system and not milking our system. That's yeah. what I hope for. I want the good people to stay. I want the bad people to go. If you're here and you're on welfare and all kind of social programs and you're getting arrested and then re-released and stealing and doing drugs and picking up prostitutes and everything like that, you need to go. But if you're here going to school, you're learning the language, you're adopting the culture, you're helping uh, the community around you, then you are contributing, then you are a contributor. Please stay. That's why. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. No, and uh, you know, uh, but I think the one point that also we also, we fail to look at, you know, is, is that people want to come here. Obviously we know that there, there are very few countries in the world where the, I mean, there are literally lines at the door, you know, of people trying to get in. Um, the, the alternative approach to that is also that really the American population is on decline. 
right? Because, you know, the changes in our society uh, have made it unnecessary to have large amounts of children. And so to sustain the the economy and to sustain, you know, the, the jobs that we have, and, and if you even want to go as far as saying the GDP, like we need to go ahead and start to bring in or allow for more people to come in to kind of fill in those gaps, you know, because again, like China, like Japan, like some of these, you know, other economic powerhouses around the country, we're seeing a sharp decline in population. And that is going to have a disastrous effect on our economy, uh, as well as government programs. And so uh, it's it's one of those things where I think, you know, again, if you do proactive uh, immigration legislation, uh, I think that's going to put us in, in a much better position long term. Um, but exactly what does that consist of? That's where it gets tricky. And Nebel, uh, what do you think the president's doing here? Um, just to answer a little bit of what you just said with our demographics, uh, United States demographics for the next 20 years looks pretty on point. So we're not having a, a huge issue when it comes to population decline, whereas Russia, uh, Germany, Japan, and even China are, are mass are running headfirst into those walls that will cause economic and social collapses as the generation population continues to dwindle. Whereas in the United States, because of uh, a already rampant um, immigration policies that we have now, and with the fact that it takes a few generations to go from having an average of five or six kids down to one to two kids, is as is, it takes a while to get there. Now, what I would like to see it, uh, in the the new DACA executive order would be a path to um, to permanent residence. Actually, I don't think the idea of giving these individuals citizenship at the moment is something that needs to be done. I think there needs to be a process where the first step is begin is making all these individuals um, permanent citizens and uh, permanent residents, and then figuring out a path for citizenship there. Because again, citizenship should still be seen as um, something that you strive for. If you're not born in this country and you're an immigrant and you're moving to this country, it needs to be something that you're striving for, not something that should just be given to you because uh, your parents did something. So I feel that, again, because the underlying issue is that a crime was committed uh, an illegal act was committed to get you into the country. So I don't I believe they should be sent back, nor do I believe they should be punished for it, but I believe a, a form of getting them back into the process. Because again, there are millions of people in line to become citizens now. And then being able to jump into the line in any given position to get the benefits of the country are, is not should not be done because I don't think it's appropriate. Um, I think merit-based is something that definitely needs to happen. I think we need to get away from this family chain situation and more merit-based. I, I think the president really did talk about that in his order and figuring out where we go from there. I, I really like the idea of a merit-based system where they become permanent residents and then allow the, the allow some form of path to citizenship that they're able to get into the line. And again, there's no stopping people from wanting to come to this country. We just have to figure out getting them into this country legally and for them to become uh, um, the best American citizens they could possibly be. Well, you know, and what's interesting, and I'll get to you next, Chris, is, is that conservatives often like to make the case that, well, they're not paying taxes. You know, they're not contributing what the average uh, resident or the average citizen is contributing because they're here illegally. Well, this is the solution. Let's get them on paper. Let's get them on, on the, the tax rolls. Um, you know, let's get them into the system. And like you said, Anibal, I think I'd be perfectly happy giving them, you know, a path to, to residence. 
because at that point, there are already laws in place or there's already policies in place for them to become a citizen once they become a permanent resident for a certain number of years. And yeah. so I think that that reaches our, the inevitable goal there. Um, yeah. without this, has the become a, this has become a pawn for the Democratic Party. They want to yeah. use this as a, as, a, as a battling ram. They want to use this as a club to hit, Demo- to hit Republicans. When really what they're doing is they are continuing to allow for human trafficking. They're going to continue to allow for people being paid under, under, under the table so they get paid less wages. And they're allowing for business owners to take advantage of people that are coming to this country and not paying them legally. So all of these things that are happening, and also these people are not—they're um, not going to report crimes when rape happens, when they get when they get uh, assaulted. All these things are happening because that because they're they're in the gray zone of of society, and Republicans have been trying to get them out of the shadows and into the light. And Democrats are the ones that continue time and time again to use them as a puppet and not as citizens. Chris, closing thoughts on the uh, topic. Yeah. Um, next time uh, Republicans have control of Congress, then Congress should act. Uh, it should be one of the number one jobs of Republicans in Congress to put a bill forward. And, you know, that bill can be, you know, you guys can discuss what's in that bill. Uh, I like Enable's ideas and everything. But what I'm actually most upset about is now you have uh, an executive order in DACA signed by, uh, by, um, by President Obama and the court essentially upheld that as law. And at this point, Trump could just rewrite that executive order um, in, you know, and tweak around the edges. And it can remain essentially a law because I think the court was looking at this as essentially saying, well, Congress isn't going to do their job. So the president has to. And, and that, that just makes me so upset that we're not following the process, right? You can make the policy. What, that's what Congress is for. Congress is there for us to discuss what the policy should be. I like Enable's ideas, but you know, for the, for this to be you know fiat rules, you know, by the president, it, it just frustrates me to no end. Well, thanks again to everybody watching. We really appreciate you from whenever, wherever you may be doing. So this is the Yard Sign, the most important relevant podcast in politics. Uh, again, big thanks to Chris Sakata right next to me, and Abel Cabrera right below me, and across from me. Amy Beck, thank you guys for joining me today. I love your insight. Uh, But before we close the show out today, uh, as I said, there's so much news going on right now. What's the uh, one story that we didn't get to today that you're watching? I'll let uh, Amy go first. Honestly, I'm watching the whole uh, judge that son's got uh, that's connected to the Epstein, um, the Epstein bank situation that got killed and the husband's critically injured because the person that was dressed up was a U.S. or EPS worker and killed the son. Uh, husband's critically wounded, so I don't know if this was a message or just another attempt uh, by the Clinton camp to, uh, to, <laughs> to silence someone. I mean, come on. At this point, it's like we all know the rules of this game. It just happens again and again and again with, with pedophile rings. So I think that one's, that's going to come to light a lot more. Hey, Chris Licata, what's the story you're watching? Yeah, I'm watching um, the the uh, Senate talking about a second stimulus package and what that looks like. Um, I know there's been some – Republicans and Democrats are so far apart on that negotiation um, where Senate Democrats are starting as, you know, $2,000 per person uh, retroactive to March and every month – uh, going forward until the end of the pandemic, 
and Mitch McConnell's at like a thousand dollars per person one time. So like, like, I don't know where the middle ground between those two spaces are and whether or not we even get a bill by the end of the week, like we're supposed to. All right. Anibal. I think the continuation of the, of the Senate fights for the stimulus package is going to be a big one coming up. I love the idea of what Amy just said. And in regards to that, uh, there are reports now that the individual that dressed up as a FedEx driver actually shot himself, committed suicide before they were able to get to him. So that's a whole other conversation that I feel needs to, I say, release everything and let the chips fall where they may when it comes to those people. They all need to be taken out in regards to if you have any connection to that, Pizzagate, everything else, you need to be taken out of all that. Um, but I think the stimulus situation and uh, what's going to happen with a PPP is what's going in my mind right now. Uh, it ends August 8th. Yeah, for me, I think it's going to have to be, obviously, this ongoing coronavirus, but uh, from the perspective of the numbers, you know, uh, I mean, I, this this spike at first seemed like, okay, we're going through a second surge, but, you know, as this has continued on, it, it just seems like there's something just not right with uh, the numbers. Obviously, there's reports coming out about hospitals not reporting negative testing, only reporting positive testing. So, again, the numbers are just all over the place. Uh, you, you, you know, nobody is now trusting what comes out of the governor's office. Nobody's trusting what comes out of the media. Uh, you know, and so we don't really, I think, have a handle on what's actually happening in regards to the coronavirus. And, uh, and then, of course, the effect that it's having on our community every single day with so many businesses still shut down. Uh, and, uh, you know, you just can't ignore the fact of, uh, of the drama happening statewide with whether or not we're going to be reopening schools. So um, it's just, uh, it's all connected, but uh, it's, it's, it's been incredible to watch and unfortunate at the same time. But uh, we'll, of course, give you an update here on our next episode. Again, thanks to our cast for today and thanks to you all for watching. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel on YouTube and our audio version of the podcast is available on Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcast platforms. Till next time, I'm Johnny Torres. Thank you for watching The Art Sign. We'll see you. Take care.